I, I think it's so important to encourage students to be able to work through conflict as well. And I know that sometimes as teachers or even as adults in general, we want to put out the flame, right? If students are having a conflict, we, we just want to stamp the conflict out. But that is such an valuable teachable moment where you can say, okay, let, we have a conflict here, name it. And so what can we do to work through this conflict? And why do we have a conflict of opinion? And how can we still live together in a society where we may not agree with everything? Like what a wonderful opportunity to, to teach about conflict resolution. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we are joined by Leanne Lee, who is a teacher and currently works as the director of the Alberta Healthy Youth Relationship Strategy called SHIFT, the Project to End Domestic Violence, hosted at the University of Calgary. Hopefully, the podcast format of this show will allow you to do something that would help your own well-being right now. Maybe you're exercising or you're biking to school or work today. Hopefully, this can free up a little bit of time to do something like that. I love hearing from the guests that I'm talking to about their own habits for well-being. So I wonder, Leanne, before we get into your experience, could you share the things that you have found that help you to stay well? Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me, Elizabeth. And hi, everybody. I love going for walks with my lovely dog, Miso. And I know this sounds very simple and straightforward, but I love trying to make time to catch up with my friends and family. It's very difficult nowadays with our busy schedules. And I also have a young child to, to actually stay connected with family and friends. So I make an effort to do that. You found that you're just happier and healthier when you do make that a priority. Absolutely. It's amazing how much of a difference it makes to just have coffee with a friend and reconnect and talk about things other than work. <laughs> That's such a good thing to remember. And it makes perfect sense that you would recommend that given what we're going to be talking about today. But tell us a little bit about your background and your current role professionally today. Sure. I'm currently the director of the Healthy Youth Relationship Strategy at SHIFT, the Project to End Domestic Violence. And as Elizabeth mentioned, we are located at the Faculty of Social Work here at the UFC. And over the last five years, I've focused on scaling up the use of evidence-based healthy relationships programs in schools across Alberta. And I would say more recently, I focused on engaging the caregivers or parents of adolescents to prevent adolescent dating violence. I've also worked in the immigrant serving sector, mostly in after-school programs. And my educational background is in education. So I have a Bachelor of Education and my Master's in Educational Research too. So you've got a lot of fields to draw on as you talk to us today about how teachers can foster healthy relationships in the school setting. Why do you think it's important to remember our social well-being when we are talking about health? And do you think social skills are something that we have naturally or are they something that we need to learn over time? Social well-being is so important because people who have healthy relationships and strong social networks tend to live longer 
and respond better to stress. The research shows that. So who doesn't want to live longer and who doesn't want to live a long life that is less stressful, right? And so when I talk about social and emotional learning to pre-service teachers and practicing teachers, I remind them that we learn skills through guidance and support. So as an example, we don't expect a child to pick up a basketball and know how to dribble and pass and score, right? We help them learn those skills over time. We also provide explicit instruction to do that. So similarly with social and emotional skills, they're learned too, and teachers play such an important role in that process. And can you explain a little bit what social emotional learning is? I would encourage you to check out the CASEL website because they provide a great definition of what social-emotional learning is. And it's really the process that people go through to acquire and apply knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, to manage their emotions and achieve personal goals, to feel and show empathy for others, to establish and maintain supportive relationships, and to make responsible and caring decisions. So I want to focus on how children and youth develop healthy social skills in order to have those positive relationships that can make such a difference. So how does an individual learn social skills? How do we figure out how to connect with other people? I think it's really important to know that individuals influence and are influenced by their environments in such deep ways. We learn how to connect with other people through our families, through our schools and communities, through our laws and policies, and through our social and cultural context. So things like social norms and social media. And I would encourage everyone to check out the social ecological model. It's a great model to show how all these different spheres influence how we build relationships and how we learn to build relationships. So I would say all of us play a role in promoting healthy relationships for children and youth. And for those that might not have that learning of social skills in the home environment, how can a teacher help someone who might have more risk factors and help them to be more successful socially? Well, let's back up a little bit. I don't know if listeners know what risk and protective factors are. So very quickly, I'll just define them. And then we'll talk about some ways to support students that have lots of risk factors. So a risk factor is anything that increases the likelihood that a person will develop in an unhealthy way. And a protective factor is anything that counteracts or buffers the effects of the risk. So if we want to support a student who has more risk than protective factors, I think a fantastic place to start is to use CASEL's social emotional learning framework to figure out what kind of competencies would benefit a student, right? So when you look at the framework, it's like, what would certain students benefit from being more self-aware of their emotions and stressors? Would they benefit from learning ways to manage their emotions? Would they benefit from building empathy or conflict resolution skills? So it's a really great tool to figure out, like, what can I do to support my student? And it's really hard, of course, to help in all of these areas. So maybe it's about focusing on a couple of skills at a time and then building on other skills later on. Something I also really want to emphasize is that when we think about risk factors for students, we really need to think beyond just the student right? Like we, we cannot focus on fixing the student without also fixing whatever is causing or amplifying those risk factors. So we really need to look at structural barriers and systemic barriers. And if we were to look inward into our systems and structures, 
I think it's important to recognize that sometimes we don't talk enough about trauma-informed practices and how schools themselves could be a source of trauma for students. We also don't talk enough about how we as teachers might have our own biases and we might be stressed out, and that can really reduce our ability to facilitate and model social and emotional skills. And I think things like poverty and racism and other types of systemic oppression can greatly impact a student's ability to develop social and emotional learning skills. So all of these things need to be considered when we think about supporting students who have lots of risk factors. So maybe we should specify what those risk factors and protective factors might be that ultimately impact someone's social skills and social well-being. Mm -hmm. So let's start with adolescence and then maybe move backwards to younger ages. But in adolescence, if we think about protective factors that encourage healthy development and healthy relationships, one of the most important things is positive parenting, right? And so having Mm -hmm. a parent or parents or guardians or caregivers that are connected, that are listening, that are building skills that are meeting the child's basic needs, all of those things play a really important role in the development of adolescence. The second thing would be positive peer relationships. And so having those friendships that are supportive and on equal footing. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is having positive romantic relationships. And the last thing is having social emotional learning skills. So being able to manage their emotions, being able to work through conflict, being able to develop goals and aspirations and to be able to make decisions. So those are some really important protective factors and assets for healthy youth development. And if we were to think about the opposite of that, the risk factors, these things are all missing, right? And so Mm -hmm. perhaps a child doesn't have positive parenting skills happening at at home. Perhaps they don't have positive peer relationships and they are in a romantic relationship that's unhealthy. And perhaps they're not developing those social emotional learning skills. Those are all risk factors for unhealthy adolescent development. And then if we were to think about the elementary ages, they're very similar. But I think the one thing I might punctuate a bit more is that healthy attachment is an important protective factor for elementary students. And what that means is that from the moment that a child is born, they need to be able to develop a relationship and a connection with at least one adult caregiver to be able to develop in healthy ways. And if that connection is missing, it's already creating an unhealthy trajectory for that child. So I would say healthy development and healthy attachment is so important for younger elementary age students. Positive parenting is another one. And of course, social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. So once children start attending school, that influence of the family decreases a little bit and those peers and friendships and relationships at school start to play a larger role in a person's development. And I'd like to know from your perspective how this growing influence of peers affects kids. It seems like it's a major part of our development. Yeah, good point. And it can be positive and it can be negative as well. And we know that peer relationships are different from 
relationships with parents and teachers and other adults. And I think a part of it, a big part of it is because peers provide the potential for more equality, right? Mm-hmm. So whereas relationships with parents and teachers and other adults are often marked by inequalities around competence and power, there are more opportunities for negotiation and co-creation amongst peers. So peers can be really important in supporting emotional development. Just as an example, friends can help to reduce anxiety. And if young people don't have friends, loneliness happens. So peers are very important, especially during adolescence. And there are many opportunities for peers to contribute to social learning. So what can a teacher do to foster those positive friendships and relationships in a classroom? In particular, I think about the students that I sometimes saw being excluded by peers. And I felt conflicted, like I wanted to intervene and for them to all get along, but I wondered if my intervening would make it worse. I think it's hard to know how to best handle that situation. What can we do as the adult amongst these peer relationships that are developing? Mm -hmm. I can empathize with those feelings. I know that being a teacher is hard and we don't always have the answers, Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that going back to the social emotional learning framework can help us identify areas for skill building. So we can help that particular student who might be excluded, but we also need to support all of the other students in the class to help create a healthy classroom environment. And there are so many great reasons resources and ideas on the CASEL website and others that I can share. But let's just walk through a very simple example of what we could do, right? So let's say that you want to support a student to identify and manage their emotions. They're feeling upset. They're being excluded. They aren't making friends very well, and they're having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. There's a really great activity in the fourth R program. The 4th R program, it's a healthy relationships program that I encourage everyone to check out. And it's called the Fishbone Activity. And it's a really simple tool that just encourages students to identify what their stressors are. So what are their stressors in their family, in their school, in their community, in their friendships? And then once the student has identified those stressors, a teacher could help the student learn a little bit about brain science to really help them understand how the brain responds to stress and how our brain kicks into flight or fight mode. And that this is normal. Like this is how our brain works. It's totally normal. And then from there, we can offer some strategies. And one that I love is called the rule of five. And what we do is we ask the student, okay, what is the issue? What's bothering you? And then you ask, well, how much is this issue going to concern you in five minutes? How about in five hours? How about in five days, five weeks, five months, and so on? So what you've done is you've scaffolded learning for that particular student, right? Like you've helped them identify what stresses them out. You've helped them to understand how the brain responds to stress and that it's normal. You've offered some great strategies for managing their emotions. And now what you can do is practice and check in with the student. And then you've got a vocabulary to address, you know, what you're talking about. Like, oh, it looks like your stressors are affecting you or your brain Mm -hmm. is really in fight or flight mode right now. Let me help you get back down and we can really Mm -hmm. think about this long term. I like those suggestions. Exactly. Sometimes, of course, peer relationships at school can be negative. So let's talk a little bit about bullying in the school setting. What is actually considered bullying and what are the different forms that it can take? 
So bullying is when one person abuses power to control or distress another person. And it's a relationship problem, which means that we need to find a relationship solution, right? So there are many types of bullying, and some of them are probably more familiar to the listeners, like physical bullying, verbal bullying, social bullying. So excluding people is a great example of social bullying, electronic and cyberbullying, And I think we need to talk more about identity-based bullying as well, which is bullying based on a person's racial, religious, sexual identity or their ability or disability. Yeah, actually, we just spoke with Dr. Russell Mayhew also about weight-based bullying, Mm. which I think fits in with that sort of body-based discrimination. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. an issue in schools. So how can teachers deal with bullying in their schools? What are some everyday strategies that we can use to make our classrooms more accepting and kind? Mm -hmm. There are so many things that we can do, and I certainly don't want to bombard listeners with a list of 50 things, but... uh, One great way to capture all that information is to check out the PrevNet website. PrevNet is Canada's Center of Excellence for Healthy Youth Relationships, and they have tons of great resources on bullying, um, as well as adolescent dating violence. And so I recommend checking that out, as well as considering implementing a social and emotional learning evidence-based program. There are so many great ones out there. And the great thing about these programs is that it isn't just a one-off strategy or a one-off activity because we know that these skills need to be cultivated over time, right? Mm -hmm. They actually provide like 10 to 12 different lessons and activities that's build on one another over time. So I strongly encourage people to check that out. And there's a list of recommended ones at the Castle website. But if I were to just give a couple of ideas, like everyday strategies, I would say routinely building in opportunities to encourage students to talk about their feelings and to help them identify and express them. I know that some teachers, they have kind of quiet corners or thinking corners, and that's a great way to actually set up a physical space to say, hey, if you're feeling something and you want to work through those feelings and just reflect on them and talk about them, let's go to the quiet corner. As a teacher, it's so important to model effective self-management. And so just saying things out loud, Mm -hmm. like I'm feeling a little frustrated, so I'm going to stop and take a breath before I decide what to do next. Like Those little things that we take for granted are opportunities where students are watching and learning. Yeah, I think we are, as teachers, focused on the lesson, on the content, Mm -hmm. but so much of what we are teaching is also just those human skills of Mm -hmm. controlling our emotions and handling difficult, stressful times. And who knows what modeling children are getting of that in their own home. We can be one additional source of information on learning those skills. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And along the same vein, I I think it's so important to encourage students to be able to work through conflict as well. And I know that sometimes as teachers or even as adults in general, we want to put out the flame, right? Mm -hmm. If students are having a conflict, we we just want to stamp the conflict out. But that is such an valuable teachable moment where you can say, okay, we have a conflict here. Name it. It's a conflict, Mm -hmm. right? And so what can we do to work through this conflict? And why do we have a conflict of opinion? And how can we still live together in a society where we may not agree with everything? Like, What a wonderful opportunity to, to teach about conflict resolution. 
Absolutely. So as students get older, they might enter romantic relationships that affect a teacher in some way or another. How does this shift into possibly romantic relationships affect young people? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to remember that romantic relationships, at least within Western Mm -hmm. cultures, are normative. And there's a lot of great research to show that they're developmentally beneficial for adolescents. Having healthy romantic relationships is associated with self-esteem and social acceptance and just feeling competent in day-to-day interactions. So it can be a really fantastic thing. But just like friendships, there's also opportunity for romantic relationships to be unhealthy. Right. So what about those unhealthy relationships? Like, how would that look in younger relationships if there was something more controlling going on? What signs would someone show if they were dealing with a more unhealthy relationship? Mm -hmm. I think if we can explicitly talk about teen or adolescent dating violence and just name it for what it is, I think that's one step in the right direction and to know what it is, right? It's a serious issue. It's a type of intimate partner violence that occurs between two people in a close relationship. And generally, it includes four types of behaviors. So we are familiar with things like physical violence and sexual violence. Perhaps we're less familiar with psychological and emotional violence. And stalking is also considered a form of adolescent dating violence. And now I think we can see more and more how technology plays a role Mm. in, in dating violence as well. It's a very serious issue. And I think what's really interesting about adolescent dating violence is that it can be bi-directional, which means that they can both perpetrate violence and be victims of violence within the same relationship. And that's a little bit different from what the research is showing in terms of adult Mm. intimate partner violence. That is interesting. Why do you think that is? I think a part of it is the fact that there's a little bit more equality when we think about peers in the adolescent age, as opposed to when we get older, there are bigger differences in terms of financial Mm. opportunities and in terms of jobs. I think we're just thrust into more structural barriers as we get older that also play a larger factor in terms of power and privilege. So what are the signs that an adolescent might be in an unhealthy romantic relationship uh, where there might be some teen dating violence, either for parents or for teachers? What what should they be looking for? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have to just trust our intuition and our gut. We sense that something's off or something's wrong. You know, sometimes we notice students that might be isolating themselves a little bit more, spending less time with their friends. Maybe they're excessively texting or calling their partners. Some teachers might notice that, you know what, the student used to love going to all of our after-school clubs or all of our sport clubs, and they've suddenly stopped attending all of those things. You know, perhaps grades are dropping or students are missing school. And I think things like being excessively worried about upsetting their partner or constantly apologizing or making excuses about their partner's behavior is another potential sign. And then, of course, injuries that students Mm -hmm. try to cover up or that they can't explain. These are all signs to look out for. And for all of us, it is self-evident that it's a negative thing to Mm -hmm. be in a relationship that has 
a form of violence, but maybe we should actually parse out what those effects are when someone is in an abusive relationship. How does that affect someone's overall well-being if they are in a relationship that has dating violence? Mm -hmm. Great question, because I think a lot of times people assume that it's just a teen relationship, right? Like it's this fleeting moment. It's not a big deal. But in fact, when there is violence in a dating relationship in adolescence, it can have a really long and serious lasting impact, whether it's mental or, or physical. And so they might experience depressive symptoms. So just this overall hopelessness or despair, they might experience disruption in their daily functioning. So things that you know, we do on a daily basis on, and, and it seems natural, becomes really, really difficult. Suicidality is a potential impact. And students can feel heightened anxiety and they might begin using substances and have a problematic relationship with substances. Unhealthy weight control and eating disorders might be another impact. And this is especially for girls. And there are also sexual health issues as well. So as an example, a sexually abusive partner may verbally or physically force sexual contact or intercourse, and this might result in an unwanted pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections. And then, of course, there's injury as well, mm -hmm. right? So we often associate that with physical and sexual violence simply because it involves bodily harm. And in really severe cases of physical dating violence, it can result in disfiguration, hospitalization, and even death, right? So this is all very serious. And I think as adults and as educators, we have a responsibility to take this seriously and do what we can. Absolutely. And as you were listing all those negative consequences, it reminded me how interconnected the different dimensions of our well-being are, that if one area is really suffering, all of the others will as well. And it's, of course, incumbent on us as teachers to try and help teens from experiencing that. So what kind of skills can teachers help students learn that would keep them safe from teen dating violence? There's lots of things that research shows that helps to prevent teen dating violence. And of course, this isn't an exhaustive list. There's many things we can do. But if I had to pick the top few things, I would say talking about boundaries and consent mm -hmm. are so important. And I know that talking about consent may immediately make teachers think about consent in sexual context. And of course, that's super important. But teachers can also help younger students develop communication and boundary setting skills. So even things like asking for permission when using people's belongings or setting boundaries about sharing personal possessions or respecting a person's answer if it's no, like these are all important skills that we can teach students at a very young age. I think that's such a good point that the concept of consent starts really young. And sometimes in the name of caring and sharing, which are of course important things to emphasize in a classroom, but sometimes we pressure kids to share something that they don't want to or put a classmate's needs or wants above their own. I think we often do this with girls that we cajole them into, oh, but it would be really nice if you could do this thing. And that is a subtle way of eroding at this idea of boundaries and what you are okay with. And that when you say no, that means something. And so I think as teachers, we can plant seeds really young that 
you know, if something's important to you, that needs to be respected by the others in the class. Mm-hmm, I agree. The second thing I think is really important is to teach children and youth communication skills. So, for example, knowing the difference between passive, aggressive, and assertive communication, mm-hmm. and then helping them practice assertive communication as opposed to the other forms, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third skill is conflict resolution skills. So, there's a really great tool, if I can just throw out an example, called the Describe, Express, Specify, and Clarify tool for conflict resolution. And essentially, what you're doing is you're breaking it down into four steps. Describe what the issue is, express how you feel about it, specify the action that you want the other person to take, and then clarify the benefits for all parties involved. And if students can increasingly use these four steps during conflicts, then hopefully we can work through conflicts as opposed to them escalating into something worse. And that can feel hard to do because, again, teachers want to put the flame out. Like, mm-hmm. you just want to solve the fight and move on. But that solving of the fight is really important. It's a learning opportunity for all of the parties there of what healthy conflict resolution looks like. And so that extra time that you invest not only will pay off later for you as a teacher as the class community sort of relates to each other better, but hopefully for those students and other relationships that you're not there to guide them through the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really great point, Elizabeth. So what should a teacher do if they suspect that someone under their care is in an unhealthy relationship? How do we handle it if a student discloses something either personally or maybe in a writing assignment that makes you wonder if some teen dating violence might be happening? Mm-hmm. This is so challenging, and I, I just want to remind everybody that we don't have to do it all. You know, teachers are not social workers, nor are they clinicians or counselors, but they can play a really important role, even if it's just being there to listen, to support, and then to find other supports that that student needs. So I think the first thing that teachers need to know is what their disclosure policies are for their school and their school board, and then any provincial reporting requirements, because those are all things that a teacher would need to follow and adhere to, of course. But I think on a more personal level, it's really important to create a space where students actually feel like they can even come to you, right? Mm -hmm. Creating that relationship and that rapport with students so they feel safe and that they can trust you. If a student comes to you and says, you know, I'm in this relationship and it's getting unsafe or I'm really unhappy or my partner's hurting me, I would say, believe them, Mm -hmm. right? You don't need to be a detective. If someone trusts you enough to tell you, believe them. And then let them know that it took a lot of courage to tell you and to remind them that you are a safe person Hmm. and that you will support them or you will find someone that can support them. And I think it's also really important to reinforce that it's not their fault and that their feelings are normal and then ask them what they need. Mm -hmm. Don't make any assumptions. But I think one, and this is something that I'll just flag because I know that some of the teachers that I've worked with have done this, is that they say, I won't tell anybody. And I think that that's something that you shouldn't do because the reality is that there are reporting policies Mm -hmm. and you have to be transparent with that student and say, look, I'm really happy that you came to me and you trust me. Thank you. But I need you to know that I might have to share this information with other people. And then that way the student is sharing information based on informed consent. I like that. I think it's especially important to not only 
to be transparent with what you do have to disclose, but to also ask the student how they would like support from you. Mm-hmm. The question, how can I help as a teacher, is so applicable in so many different contexts, whether it's teaching someone, you know, how to write an essay or how to deal with a relationship, that how can I help extends the support, but still is letting that student have a little bit of say in what that support looks like, which might be a big deal to a child that Mm -hmm. feels that they have less control in their life right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you wish teachers knew about making social well-being a priority in their work? We've got a lot on our plates, but why is this important to pay attention to as a teacher? Hopefully by this part of the podcast, it's clear why it's so important for our overall well-being. And it goes beyond just academic achievement. It's about life well-being as well. And that's what we hope to see in all our students. But the one thing I just want to emphasize and that I think is really critical is that promoting social well-being really needs to go beyond just the student. And I know that as teachers, often we, we think, you know, my goal is to make students, their learning experience as positive as possible. And of course, that's true. But we need to also recognize and look at the structures and systems that might create conditions that either promote or hinder social well-being for our students. And we can't do it all, right? We can't defeat racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism by ourselves, of course. But I think it's just important for us to find ways to also address those broader underlying drivers of unhealthy relationships, rather than just immediately jumping to quick strategies and activities and quote unquote, quick wins, right? Because we are going to do a disservice to our students if we don't also look at those larger systems and structures that play a big role in creating unhealthy relationships. Yeah, and teachers really are the facilitators of at least that class community. And there's so much that we can do to set the tone and what is acceptable behavior. And even the learning activities that we design as teachers, I think can foster that community and social well-being. Are we having students do a think-pair-share? I know that's an elementary strategy, but it works as well with high school students. And I think Sometimes it's hard for adolescents to be brave and strike up that conversation. And so I think in some ways as the teacher, as the adult in the room who isn't really concerned about making peer relationships because we don't have any peers in the room, um, that we can provide those opportunities for students to share their feelings, like you said, or to just talk or work together. I do feel like school is that scaffold for interaction. And for some students, that might be the main social interaction that they have with peers in their day. And so whatever we can do to make that positive and inclusive can go a long way for that student's overall well-being. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. What is something that a teacher could start doing tomorrow if they thought, you know, I think I want to do more to improve my students' social skills and to help them make positive relationships? What could they do? I think the first thing I would encourage teachers to do is leverage the strength of like-minded people and groups, whether it's 
at the university or it's at your school placement or when you become a teacher in your schools. It's so important to build a community of people that are passionate about this, that are interested about this, because sometimes this work can feel really lonely and it feels like you're pushing against this massive system that doesn't want to change. But sometimes there's power in numbers and there's strength in groups. And I would really encourage people to build those alliances and coalitions with people that have a similar passion in the area of social and emotional learning and well-being. I would also take care of yourselves as teachers. I know that over the last couple of years, the BEAD program has really focused on self-care and how important that is. And it's hopefully making a change not only within our new cohort of teachers, but also within our BEAD program itself. And I would say learn, 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 right? There's so many ways to improve our thinking, expand our approaches and strategies, review the Castle website, check out the PrevNet website. There's a great website called Love is Respect with lots of great resources. And the last thing I would suggest is to read up more on this idea of structural ideology. It's from a writer called Paul Gorski, and I think it's so important that we move beyond just looking at fixing students, and we also focus on fixing structures. I have not heard about structural ideology. I'm going to need to look into that. That sounds interesting, Mm -hmm. kind of like the hidden curriculum of schools. That Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that the hidden or implicit curriculum of schools is positive and inclusive Mm -hmm. and not reinforcing systems of oppression that have been there for a while. These are all great ideas. Thank you, Leanne, so much for sharing your experience and the research on this area of social well-being. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website, everactive.org, for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed. Thank you.